Welcome to Transparency with Diana B, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. In this podcast, we explore some of the deepest struggles and hardships that many advisors face and bring these issues out into the open so that others may find healing. Join us for this journey where we explore ways to overcome the stresses and anxieties as Diana draws from years of expertise and guest experts to manage the personal challenges of advisors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Transparency with Diana B, a podcast by WealthManagement.com. My name is Diana Britton, and I'm the managing editor of WealthManagement.com. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a personal development issue facing financial advisors and financial services professionals. Guests join me to talk about their journey dealing with the struggle and how they found healing ultimately. My guest today is Rob Bartenstein. He's the CEO of Kestra Private Wealth Services in Austin, Texas. It's a subsidiary of Kestra Financial that helps wirehouse advisors go independent. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Diana. Good to be here. Uh, So Rob's going to share his life story here with us. Uh, It's not like there was sort of one big event that shaped you, but you know, several things that led to where you are now. I know that one thing that shaped you was kind of how you were treated as a child. Um, So tell us a little bit about your childhood. What was it like growing up for you? Yeah, so um, probably not unlike a story that a lot of people can tell. My my, um, childhood was um, moving from place to place um, as a primarily as a result of my my parents, my mother and father um, beginning divorced when I was about six or seven years old. And then my mother remarried a couple of times after that. So moved around a lot, lived in a lot of different places, went to a lot of different schools, um, both as a product of moving, but also financial circumstances and the various ups and downs. So it was... Um, in, in a lot of ways, it was a, a, a normal childhood and, you know, nothing terribly remarkable, remarkable about it. And in other ways, I think it was, it, it had some dark elements that I think, you know, certain people and a certain number of people can relate to. Yeah. I mean, so what were some of those dark elements? Um, could you get into a little bit of that? Yeah, sure. Um, I, so primarily, Obviously, divorce in in and of itself is not a big deal in in terms of its uniqueness. You know, it affects children and a lot of them every year and and has for a very long time. So that by itself isn't such a big deal. The darker elements beyond that in my childhood were really more a product of, (laughs) not to to point the finger at my mom necessarily, but the decisions that my mom made in her relationships and, and, you know, and who she uh, chose to be with, uh, you know, marry or date or otherwise. And, and in those cases, there were some, some fairly rough, you know, circumstances, both economically and uh, interspersed with a fairly healthy dose of um, emotional and, and physical abuse that, you know, that we had to deal with um, growing up and, and over a fairly long period of time. Yeah. Are there any, you know, sort of, uh, 
particularly painful memories? Uh, I know you were, you mentioned one to me um, where you got hit in the face. Yeah, uh, that that was uh, was painful at the time, and and probably it's certainly a painful one to look back on. But um, I was, I think I was about somewhere between ten and twelve years old, um, and I had done something that uh, upset my stepfather can't quite remember what that was, but, um, you know, a- after a short sort of, uh, discussion of whatever the incident was, you know, just close fist punch right in the face. And this was a, this was a big guy. I mean, he was, you know, over six feet tall and, um, probably weighed about two thirty-five. So it sent me flying, you know, through the air for a few feet and, yeah. um, and then that, yeah. And so, and, and that, that wasn't the first time anything like that had happened, but it was certainly um, one of the more, you know, directly violent things that had happened. And then there were all kinds of, you know, similar types of instances off and on, um, you know, over the several years that my, my mom was married to this guy. Yeah. And I know that, you know, you, you told me that you didn't, really consider yourself poor, you know, were, were you poor? It sounds like, um, you know, by sort of other standards, you, you guys were kind of living in poverty. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So the interesting thing about my childhood, I think, is that I can cite a couple of round trips between, you know, what, what would have been considered uh, probably even upper middle class uh, lifestyle for a period of time to mm. we had we were getting government cheese and you know didn't have two nickels to rub together um my stepfather had filed for bankruptcy at one point and that was a bankruptcy that you know was tied to a, a large business uh failure that included a lot of personal guarantees and so we lost we literally lost everything and mm. um and i think that all of these things, when you're going through them, when you're a kid, you, it's hard to see the big picture and, and kind of put all these elements together. But, you know, we weren't unaware of the effect that that had on, on him and, and his ability to, to, to manage just generally. And I think it also was a beginning of an insight into just human nature and, and how people process things. And, one of the things that I learned fairly early on is that when people are under a a tremendous amount of stress, one of the things that very noticeable is that the little things are the things that set them off. It's not the big Mm. things. And, and it's weird as it's weird as a kid to think about looking back on, on the kid that was me to think about learning to navigate that emotional river. You know what I mean? Um, um, where you're dealing with adults that were kind of, um, unpredictable and, and in certain ways you know extremely unreliable and then also dangerous it's just uh it's interesting to look back on i'm I'm, obviously i'm glad it's a long time ago but you you do sort of always carry all that stuff with you and 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 then what those situations did to you know create the person that i am and then inform my worldview and you know how i navigate the world and all that it's uh it's been an interesting journey for sure yeah, and so uh, I know that you eventually uh, went into military school and the army. Uh, what got you into the into the military school? How did you how did you get that to that point? Well, so 
again, not, not unlike, and I, I keep saying this cause I don't, I don't feel that I'm particularly special in, in any real way. I mean, I think a lot of people have had these experiences, so I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, hold myself up as, as some sort of, you know, hero or anything here at all. But I think as anyone could relate to a kid who had gone through those circumstances um, for years, I had some, you know, I had some issues that, that were, um, you know, were, were manifesting themselves when I was sort of 15, 16 years old, where, you know, probably a lot of pent up anger, for sure. And, you know, a, a propensity to, to probably lash use, out or use, yeah, you yeah, use violence myself, because I sure. think I sort of learned that, that that was a way to, to shape the world around you. But also, and, and I think there's a lot of this, that's just part of being an adolescent, but it's, it was you know, sort of accentuated by the circumstances, just, you know, a rejection of a, a rebellion, you know what I mean? Like complete rebellion against everything, against Absolutely. everyone. And so my, my mom, uh, had divorced from her second husband, I guess, by the time I was 15. And she and I living together was not a great recipe. I had a younger brother as well, who went through, you know, all the same sort of things I'm describing. But we were, we were uh, financially in, in a very tough spot. And we were all kind of living together in a small apartment. And, you know, it just was not easy to have all those personalities in a small space. And, and eventually it just led to a, a point where I just left home and, you know, I was 16 kind of on my own, um, depending on the, the kindness of strangers and, and my best friend and his family, he was the youngest of eight. Mm-hmm. And, and I think my, my father who was, who had always been geographically very distant, um, but also, you know, was not very much involved in my life but had the resources and, um, and the background to, to say, you know, like, I think, uh, in a, in a constructive way, not in a, not in a, a, you know, dictatorial way, but I think that the situation that you find yourself in is not a great one. Mm. Um, and I think that one of the things that we can do to help is just get you out of that situation. So let's get you out of, you know, effectively being on your own and let's get you into an environment where you can be safe and, you know, be taken care of and go to school and do all the things that, that normal kids do. And, and so that was what ultimately led us to, um, to the military school thing. And so, uh, my, my junior year and senior year were spent at Hargrave Military Academy in Southern Virginia, a place that I had never visited before showing up on day one, mm. um, but that ultimately ended up providing the absolute right kind of structure and um, positive reinforcement and all the other experiences that went, went with it, probably at the last minute of my life where I would have let anyone, you know, influence who I was going to be. Mm. I think, uh, you know, we start to get fully formed at that point in our lives, you know? And so for me, Hargrave came along at exactly the right time and probably in the nick of time. And, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about, you know, being around other people, working with other people, living with other people. Um, I learned about, you know, what it means to, to strive for excellence, whether that was academically or athletically and, and be rewarded for it. You know, it's all, all stuff that is kind of table stakes 
in in a lot of environments, but in to that point in my life had been kind of haphazard, and and I'd always also been you know a, a sort of the perennial underachiever in school, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, doesn't apply himself, you know, <laughs> yeah, class clown doesn't work well with others, you know, that kind of thing, and and it's so you know, having everything kind of stripped away, every privilege, every thing that you have, and then starting at zero in a uniform with all the other boys and, you know, kind of working your way up through that system. I mean, it's a tailor-made system for, for boys, I think, in particular, for young men, because it, we tend to be kind of binary in, in sort of that, that you do, you get type of framework work really well for us it's not too it's not nuanced it's not complicated it's just very um, straightforward so fortunately um, that that clicked for me that system worked for me and and really in the end what it taught me was that you know I could do a lot of the things that I maybe thought I was capable of doing but had never applied myself to do yeah and and so that be that success nurtured a a desire for more success, you know, it's like, Oh, I can do this. So I can do more. Let's do more. Cause that's mm-hmm. better. You know, that feels good. And it also, I think pretty clearly instilled a sense of confidence, began to build a sense of confidence in myself where I didn't realize I, I probably didn't, I'm sure I didn't have this perspective um, for years and years, but when I have looked back on it, what I see is a kid who didn't know who he was and and didn't know where he was going and and where he'd come from or what he was about or who he was going to be and that that system began to shape those qualities in me which you know had I not gotten them um, then like I said I think probably right before it was too late I, I think my life would have been very different yeah and so I know that you you went into the army afterwards and um uh, you know, I know that shaped you a lot as well, but um, tell us about the day that you ended up in the hospital when, after you had joined the army, what, what was, what happened? So um, yeah, I enlisted because I, you know, wanted the adventure um, and I, <laughs> cho- and I chose all the hard things that the army has, you know? Um, and so um, one day I was, a, it was a Saturday I think I was, I was just out for a run by myself and I don't know, it was about five miles, I think so far that day. And um, all of a sudden I started to get tunnel vision, felt like I was going to pass out. I grayed out and I fell down. I kind of fell into the ditch by the side of the road. Oh. And, and I was lying there with, with my feet up, kind of up on the road and my head down in the ditch. And I came to, and I was on my back and I, felt my pulse and we had just finished a, a really good combat life-saving course so I I knew what I was doing when I took my pulse and I and I I'm, even though I wasn't that great at math I was doing the math in my head going I kept coming up with numbers that were like 300 and something as a pulse rate and I knew that wasn't good um, mm. but as things settled down and and you know my consciousness kind of came back online I eventually got up dusted myself off and I walked back to my barracks and I found the medic and I just said you know hey doc I was just out on this run and this is what happened and he looked at me kind of funny and he said well have you ever had an EKG before 
that sounds like a heart issue. And I said, no, I never had one. And this was 1989, maybe. Mm. And, you know, it just wasn't a routine thing that they did. I think it's a lot more common now. But so we go to, we go to the little medical area there in the battalion and, and they put me a, a, put an EKG on me. And he says, man, I don't, I don't really know what this is, but I think you and I should take a drive over to the base hospital. So we get in this truck and we drive over to the hospital and we go into funny because we went in the emergency area. I was like, well, I don't feel like this is an emergency, but that's the way we went. And, yeah. uh, and then a whole bunch of people kind of got involved and uh, cardiologists and everything and did another EKG. And um, shortly after that, and some other tests, the cardiologist walks into my room and he's looking down at me and he says, so how do you feel? And I said, I feel great. I feel, you know, I'm ready to go. And, and uh, he says, do you, do you like what you do in the army? I said, yeah, yes, sir. I love it. And he goes, well, then I've got some bad news for you. We think your military career is over. And basically we're amazed that you're alive. You have a very, mm -hmm. you have a very significant um, defect in your heart that is going to be difficult to correct. Um, if, if it can be corrected, it's probably going to require open heart surgery. It, you know, there are some medicines we can try, but in any case, you are basically a walking time bomb and, mm -hmm. and that that's a liability for the army that, that they're not going to, you know, they're not going to want to keep around. So long story short, we went and got a civilian second opinion and the civilian folks said exactly the same thing. And, and they basically said, look, these medicines that, that you're on right now, which I could already tell were terrible. Um, they were just kind of turn you into a zombie. So it's like, you're mm -hmm. safe if you're not emotional, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but Long story short, that's what landed me in a, in a VA hospital for about six months, all told that the problem at the time was that the, the issue that I had, um, they had done 16 operations to fix these, these issues. And for the people who they'd operated on had not survived the operation and they weren't sure why, but they also all fit the same profile that, that I fit at the time, which was, they were young, they were very athletic and they were in great shape and they thought that maybe it was the stopping of the heart that was creating the problem by shocking the tissue they were not able to restart restart the heart after the surgery surgery was complete and so my job in effect was to go from being a guy who at the time i mean i was running you know three five minute miles back to back like like it was a piece of cake i, I was you know push-ups sit-ups pull-ups when you name it that's what we did in the unit I was in. I was basically, you, you kind of act like a professional athlete. That's, that was your job was to be in great shape and, and train all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I had to sit in the hospital for three months and quote unquote, get out of shape. So not, not, not a very pleasant experience, but, um, and ultimately the, the surgery itself was, was a pretty difficult one. And the recovery from it was, was, you know, it was tough. I mean, this is open heart surgery and this is, 1989. And as, as good as those folks were, that's a pretty invasive deal to go through. And I, I probably didn't really feel like myself for near almost 10 years afterwards, but wow, but it worked. So I'm still here. Yeah. Um, and I mean, how did that experience change your life? I mean, it's, it sounds like it was pretty frightening, um, you know, going through that and, and not knowing what the outcome would be. Yeah. I think for me, it was almost a, a bit of luck in, in kind of the oddest way in the sense that 
you know, here I was 20, almost 21 years old, um, you know, 10 feet tall and bulletproof. And, and I think I had been living my life mm. to that, to that point in a way that was more reflective of <laughs> the, the things I'd gone through than, than the person that I probably really wanted to be. Mm. And, and so when you're forced to sit in a room with yourself um, for a long time, I guess you can have a few different reactions to that experience. But, but mine was, uh, I guess, fortunately, a, a bit of introspection and, and sort of a, an inventory of who I, who I was and who I was, who I wanted to be. Yeah. versus versus who I was. And so it didn't hurt that I was probably the youngest person in that hospital by a, you know, a solid 40, if not 50 years. And, and you got a very clear picture of, of that's the road ahead. You know, those guys are the road ahead. So when you get there, where they are, what have you, what were you going to have achieved or, or done in the interim? What, what were the next 50 years going to look like? And, you know, this is pre the internet. Believe me, I, I didn't know anything about AA or, or, or the 12 step program or anything like that when, when I did this, but I started, I made a list of people that I felt like I needed to kind of settle the books on. And um, I started tracking them down through friends at, on the, pay, on the pay phone in the hallway, you know what I mean? <laughs> so we're pre internet, pre internet era here. Um, but pre cell phones. Yeah. Pre, yeah. Pre everything. So finding people all over the country and, and just kind of, you know, apologizing where I needed to, um, straightening things out where I needed to a whole host of, um, activities that, that went along with that. I was writing a lot and I was just kind of sorting myself out. And, and there was one, there was one call of all those that really stood out to me. And it was um, a guy I hadn't seen in a, in a long time. I had gone to a, a summer camp and um, up in the mountains in New Hampshire. And it was this very austere kind of environment in the sense that there was no electricity, no hot water. It was kind of back to early 20th century, if you will. Mm -hmm. but, but, but super in terms of, you know, spiritual development, emotional development, that kind of physical development of, of boys, of young men. Mm -hmm. And the, and, and I had, um, I had squandered my experience there um, in a variety of ways that we've already kind of touched on. And I always felt bad about it. And it happened to be the summer because I, so it was the night before my surgery that I finally got a hold of this guy and it was the camp director and he was there at the camp and there was only one phone line. So fortunately I called and um, they were, they were able to get him. And as we started to talk and just catch up, cause I hadn't seen him in, you know, I don't know how long, but years. The thing that I remember saying to him is, I don't, I, I know that I'm, I know that I'm going to make it through tomorrow, even though I was worried about it. But I said, the thing I wanted you to know was that I know how hard everybody there worked to help me to kind of get to the other side of everything that I was going through. And, and I also want you to know that I know that I squandered the whole thing and screwed it up and, mm. you know, was ungrateful and just, you know, didn't, I didn't toe the line and, and I regret that. So I just wanted you to know that. And there was this long pause where I thought I wasn't sure what the reaction to that was going to be. 
And I, then I wasn't even sure he was still on the line. Mm-hmm. And just when I just when I was about to say something, he said, you know, Rob, if you had really squandered the time here, we wouldn't be on the phone right now. Wow. That's that's pretty deep. Yeah. That's pretty, yeah. pretty smart. I want to know, you know, sort of how you ended up in financial services and how these experiences have kind of shaped what you're doing today um, in the industry. So I, I was around the business as a kid because my father was an institutional bond broker. So, so mm-hmm. I, I had seen the business and I'd seen the people that were in the business and I really liked them. And I thought, you know, it was an amazing cast of characters in the seventies and um, the late seventies and the early eighties. And these guys were all bigger than life. And it was all guys back then, of course. So, you know, it was just sort of a, an incredible place. And, and as I grew up and went, got through college and was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, it, it had the appeal that financial services had to me then was that I could, you know, in effect work for myself and I could also control my upside or, or my downside, depending on how hard I worked and, you know, mm. how diligent I was. So there was an appeal in the freedom of the, of the business. So I think that's what led me to it initially that, in, and I basically, you know, like I think like a lot of people in this business say, I also wasn't sure what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we all sort of, you know, many of us, at least, I think it's less true today than it was maybe 20 years ago. But I think a lot of people back into this business because, because of the freedom and, and the flexibility of it. But so that's how I got started. And um, I got trained by, by Edward Jones at their headquarters in, in St. Mm-hmm. Louis, learned how to knock on doors and talk to people. And that's a tough, that's a tough way to do it. Um, yeah. but, but there's a, you know, there's a lot of tradition and a lot of history there and they know what they're doing. So I, that was a formative experience in my career. I moved on to a regional firm where, you know, it was more in kind of keeping with what I envisioned, which is like working in a big office with a lot of people. And then ultimately I, I knew it, I'd always had this dream of wanting to go to law school. And um, so after a couple of years of working at the regional firm, I think I just figured like, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. And I'm still young enough to kind of do whatever I want to do and chart the course I want to go to chart. So I left there and went to law school in 96 through 99, right as the market was going through the roof the whole time and almost, almost left law school after my second year to go back into the business. And unfortunately my wife was adamant that we were, you know, we started this and we're going to finish it, which was, which was the right thing to do. Thank God we did that. So, um, finished law school and I had worked, uh, in a couple of very large firms, which were firms that people, you know, had coveted as places where they would get permanent employment, but I, I had not enjoyed the experience of it going back to the, the topic we were just on. I think I had developed this feeling that whatever I was going to spend my time doing, it had to really matter to me. It had to be, it had to be vital and it had to be balanced. And so Mm. watching, you know, really successful attorneys tucking their kids in in quotes over the phone at eight o'clock at night, I just, I saw that and said, this, this is not for me. Mm. If that's the top, if this is what it means to be the best, then this isn't for me, you know, because I'm not going to live like that. I just can't. It's, it's not that there's anything wrong with it per se. It's just, it doesn't fit for me. Sure. And, and so then I 
I won a, a fellowship in public interest law, which basically means you're like a public defender in my third year of law school. So I tried that. And that was a horrible experience for a completely different reason, just because the system is, is brutal. Mm. And, you know, the same people are coming through the, the meat grinder over and over. And it's just, I mean, I think we're, we're all sort of aware of, of, you know, the problems with that system, but again, not a place that I could envision um, spending, spending my life. Not that it's not worthwhile and that I have the utmost respect for the people that do that because they genuinely deeply care, but I don't, I didn't think I had the really, frankly, the will um, to, to make it through that. So, you know, in the back of my mind, this business was always kind of there and it was sort of always calling. So I started making some phone calls and I thought, you know, as a lawyer now, I think I could do a lot of good for, for clients. I know a lot of things I didn't know before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started calling around and, and one guy I talked to said, you know, I, there's this firm that you really should look into. They're based up in New York. They compete with Goldman Sachs. They have this really elite group of advisors. You have to have a graduate degree, which you're going to have, but you should call them and, and see if maybe you could get an interview there. So mm-hmm. I called, it was Donaldson, Lufkin and Jenrette, DLJ, mm-hmm. and, and called the, the folks up there. And somehow, I, I forget exactly how, but between meeting some people in Philadelphia and then meeting some people in Dallas, of all places, ended up getting an interview uh, where you spend a whole day you know, I think this is an old Wall Street story, but you spend the whole day from the crack of dawn to the to late at night interviewing all day long with a variety of people, and the, yeah. and it's de- it's designed to be the it's designed to be the gauntlet that it is, you know, mm-hmm. and they just try and figure out who you are and, and what you've got. And so, went up there halfway through the day, I knew things weren't really going well for me, and mm-hmm. and I was what I found out when I got there was, you know, I was competing with people who were finishing their MBA at Yale and finishing their MBA at Harvard and Dartmouth and, you know, people that frankly were just really intimidating. Yeah. Um, and, you know, had the, had the goods and, and this is the, they were the prototype of the, of the people that were going to be hired in these situations. And it was very obvious because everybody who was interviewing me was just like them. Mm-hmm. And this is, and this is kind of what we, we were talking a little bit about um, in our pre-call where, you know, it's like, what, what does this background that you have do to you or create in you that's good for the long term versus just the, the negative experiences yeah. that, you, that you've gone through? And, and right. I think one of the things that's always stood out to me from a rearward looking analysis is the, is the re- resiliency that it created. And this is one of those moments where I think there, I began to understand what that meant without really intuitively even getting it. But I went into the men's room halfway through that day and I looked myself in the mirror and I said, you are getting your ass kicked. And if you do not get this together right now, this opportunity is gone and Hmm. it's, and it's never coming back. So if we're going out, we're going out with our boots on and we're going to go down swinging. So let's go. Hmm. And I went into the next interview and the second or third question the guy said to me was, why would I ever hire you? And I said, why, why do you mean, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I've got a line of Ivy league guys and girls out the door here and you're from a non-targeted school. You don't have an impressive resume. You don't have a, you know, even an impressive educational resume. Like why would, why would I hire you and waste a a shot at getting one of these other folks? And I said, well, first of all, 
I'm from a non-targeted school and yet here I am, I'm sitting here yeah, and, and we're talking and I'm from a non-targeted school, but you know, going to Harvard doesn't mean you're going to pick up the phone and going to Yale doesn't mean you're going to get on a plane and, and, you know, going to Dartmouth doesn't mean you're going to do anything it takes to win. And I will do anything it takes to win. Mm. And that's, that's why I'm here. And that's why you should hire me in effect. I mean, it more or less said it just like that. Right. And the guy cracked a smile and, <laughs> and he, and he kind of looked down the, he looked down the list of the other people that I'd interviewed with. And he looked, he looked me right in the eye and he goes, now you're getting it. Mm. Wow. So, so I guess they had had comments, you know, that he, he was reading and he looked at mm. me and he goes, now you're getting it. And, and then we had a very good conversation and he just, and, and as he handed me my checklist of the people on the way out, he, he kind of patted me on the back. He said, like, let's go, son, let's go. Yeah. And, and then the rest of the interviews were great. Cause I, I kind of understood what, what this was about, you know? And, and again, it's that, it was that resiliency of, of, you know, it's, again, I'm not a hero because of what I went through and I, I don't want to even talk about it like that. Um, and maybe that's not even the right way to say what I'm trying to say, but if there's any good that comes from those sorts of trials, it's finding the things that are positive about what they've done to you and using that as the way to make yourself better and, and move forward in the world versus letting, letting those events define you and, and kind of trap you in this place of like, you know, I'm not good enough or I don't deserve this or, you know, I'm just some kid who gets beat up by adults. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a great, great attitude to have. Um, well, I mean, I know we're going to run out of time soon, Rob, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Kestra private wealth services and, um, you know, sort of how did you come to, to run that firm and, and tell us a little bit about um, PWS. So, this this business is a is an absolute complete total expression of of who i am and who my partners are as people and it's the it's the culmination of everything that we've all done professionally and otherwise in our lives and and i think what's so rewarding about it is that our job our mission which hasn't changed since the day we began is we want to help people who were working in kind of, you know, captive wirehouse W2 employee type situations who want to be entrepreneurs, who want to be free, who want to, who want to get out, who want to own the business and, yeah. and brand the business and have their own logo and their own website. We want to help them create this environment for them mm -hmm. and for their clients. And so that's really what we do. And, and what's funny about this is that it's the hardest thing I've ever done by a mile. Um, certainly it's the hardest professional thing I've ever done, but it's, I mean, we're just evangelical about it, you know, and that's where the, that's where the energy comes from is that we just want to spread the word of this opportunity to as many people as we can. And then we want to drive the, the trust and the, and, and the faith that people have in us we want to drive that home every day. So we're, we want to be accountable. We want to provide the experience that we know people need to, to do this at the highest level. Mm. Um, and, and so what we're really about is taking people out of this captive environment. So let's say you worked at Merrill Lynch for 25 years. You're very successful, but you haven't had to do any of the stuff that really makes the business go in the background, you know, whether right. it's the, the real estate or the technology or the compliance, what have you, but you're great 
at working with clients and you're great at financial planning and, and all the things that people truly value, that's what you're great at. But to mm -hmm. be independent and to be a business owner, you're going to have to learn all these other skills, which are going to detract from your time and your ability to execute on the primary mission that you have. So what we do is stand in the middle there and we say, we'll take care of all of that stuff so that you can continue to execute on the mission and the thing that you view as most important, whatever that is. And that, that varies by, by advisor. Um, but you know, they're thematic. They, they all tend to run in the similar theme, but what each person values about their relationship with their clients is specific to them. We're there to make sure that they have the time to do all those things and yet still be the business owner without getting bogged down in the minutia of running the business. Yeah. Well, it's a, um, it's an interesting model. It's, it's a great model. I know you guys are, are recruiting a lot to that model. Um, you have 35 uh, offices around the country now, uh, 4.7 billion in assets in that division. But we're, we're just about out of time. I'd like to thank my guest, Rob Bartenstein, for being on the podcast and you know, sharing some, some painful memories, um, but also you know, sort of some positive outcomes uh, that have kind of shaped your life. Thank you so much, Rob, for coming on. Sure thing, Diana. Good to be here. If you'd like to reach out to Rob or you have questions for him specifically, you can reach him at rbartenstein at kestrafinancial.com. And we'll put this in the show notes below as well. If you have a struggle yourself and you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at transparencywithdianab at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to Transparency with Diana B. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there's hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Transparency with Diana B podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding your particular situation.